are starting a series and we've called it Unwrapped because what we want to do is we want to unwrap the true gift of Christmas, which is Jesus Christ. We want to spend some time talking about what Christmas really means, what Christmas really did for the world. You know, I've been um, contemplating this for a while and spending some time just thinking about um, what it meant for God to send his son. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we glibly talk about this particular scripture. Like we've read so many times, we've heard so many times that sometimes we don't even hear it anymore. But it goes like this, John 3, 16 to 18. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. How many of you can quote John 3.16 off by heart? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I feel like even people who don't know the Lord can quote that, that scripture. The reason that it is so popular is because it's so profound. The truth it carries, what it means is something that is so spectacular. I don't know what Christmas time means for you. But I have gone through many years of Christmases, and I do remember in the early years um, the joy of buying my children all those gifts. We still buy our children gifts. They don't, ju- they don't jump up and s- down and squeal with delight anymore, but they do look happy. But you remember those days. I remember as a child coming into the lounge on Christmas morning. I usually had sneaked in before anyone was awake just to make sure Father Christmas had actually come. And lo and behold, he always came. What was remarkable to me that the wrapping paper on the gifts was always the same as the one that my parents used. So I was a little bit confused about that. But finally, you know, I just, in the delight of the gifts, put away my confusion. But after years and years and years of buying my children gifts, I've, I've thought of a few things. And I've thought of this as that Christmas is something like working for a corporate. How many of you work for corporates? Praise the Lord. God bless every corporation in this country. May they prosper. May they grow. May they employ more people. May they do the right thing. May they make great amounts of money and sow them back into our communities. Amen. But I thought it's quite like that because you know what I found in Christmas? I did all the work and the man in the suit got all the credit. (laughs) You know how that is. You know how that is. I'm also thinking that this year I'm going to buy a little, I'm going to buy batteries for all my children. I'm going to put a little note on them. Toys not included. (laughs) (laughs) Only the parents are laughing. All the rest of you are like, what are you talking about? You know how Christmas you always buy those gifts for your children and they're so fantastic and you wrap them up and you open them under the tree and then your child goes to turn them on and nothing happens and then you read the little thing that says batteries not included. So I'm thinking of buying the batteries and just saying toys not included so they they can get their own toys. Is that okay, son? Good. (laughs) But ultimately, you know, when we read the scripture and we talk about how God loved, and so he gave. And that's, you know, for me, all the commercialism about Christmas and all the different things that have come into Christmas that maybe don't really reflect the truth of what's behind it, 
I do think that the giving of gifts is a profound representation of what God did. The Bible talks about three things that were true before creation began. Three things that happened before God even created the world. And I use that word happened quite loosely because if you're in a season of no time, I don't know how they happen, they just are. So there were three things that before God began time were. And the first thing was that God the Father loved Jesus Christ. When Jesus was about to go back up to heaven, he prayed an incredible prayer to his heavenly Father, and he said this. He said, Lord, all these are, that are with me, in John 17, you can go ahead and read it, all these are with me. Would you, would you show them my glory, that glory that I had with you before time began? And then he says this, that you loved me before the creation of the world. That's Christ's glory, that he was loved, that he was completely and absolutely loved. The next thing that was true before creation was that God chose you. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that before the creation of the world, he chose you to be holy and blameless before him in his love. I want you to think about that for a moment. Here is God the Father absolutely loving the Son, the Son loving God the Father, the Holy Spirit loving both of them, them loving them back. This perfect bond of love. No pain, no heartache, no distress. Absolute perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect life, perfect satisfaction. And God said, we have to make room for more. Because the third thing that happened before the creation of time, it says in Revelations 13 that Christ was crucified before God created the world. So at that moment, in that place of perfection, God said, it's not enough. My love is not satisfied. I need more to love. And God in that moment, maybe there was a heavenly conference between the three of them. I'm not entirely sure. But this perfect oneness, they said, listen to me. They said this. We will rip ourselves apart to make place for those ones that I've chosen. He looked ahead into 2016 into, I don't know, 3095. I don't know how long this world's going to go on. He looked ahead and he saw you. I know you won't be alive in 3095, but anyway, he looked ahead to your life. He looked ahead to my life. And he said, the concept of Christo is so perfect, so beautiful, so amazing, so incredible. I cannot be without it. I will rip myself apart in order to have him in order to know him, in order to love him. And so before the creation of the world, God knew that in order to create us, that there would have to be a sacrifice for the sin that we would commit because he had to give us a free will. And he, in order to be the loving, glorious God, he had to allow us to be free. 
And so in that moment, when they decided, when they chose you, at that same time they chose pain. They chose pain for themselves. And Jesus tore himself away from his heavenly father to make space in that love relationship with you and me. And how did that manifest on the earth? It manifested that when Jesus came to be here on earth, when he hung on the cross, he cried out this very thing. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no time in all of Jesus' life on earth where he ever called God anything other than Father. Except for this one time when he hung on the cross and he was, he was ripped from his father and punished in a horrendous and terrible way so that there was room for you and me. And before the creation of anything, Jesus Christ said this. The concept of you, of me, is so important, so beautiful that I'm prepared to face that so that they may be, so they may be in my love, so that there will be a place in this glorious perfection for more. So today we're going to be talking about the love of God. One of the ladies who was praying before the services said this to me. She said she was driving along the other day and she thought, God, I just don't understand your love. I just don't know your love. Help me to comprehend your love. And as she was saying that, I just began praying that for each of us, we would come to comprehend that because love has become such a superficial word. I love Rice Krispies, which I don't really. <laughs> you know, I love my dog. I love holidays. I it's, it's just, it rolls off our tongue so easily and means so little. I love peanut butter. I love it when someone notices me. I love my job. But, but God loved. And his love cost him. And he was prepared to do whatever it takes for your and my well-being. And his love is so intense, so wild, so, so fiery. You know, we think of it as this tame, beautiful thing with pink kind of misting around it with little hearts and ribbons and bows. And you know what? God's love's not like that. Oh, of course it can be like that at times, but mostly it's a fiery, wild passion that cannot be stopped. Think back to the time that you fell in love. Or maybe you are in love now, and I hope all your married couples can just think about today. But, you know, I remember a time, and it mostly is now also like this, when Andrew walked in the room, my heart stopped. You know, I was like, oh, that is the most great, that most wonderful thing I've ever seen. You know, he had muscles on his muscles. You know, I was just like, oh, that's so amazing. So amazing. You know, I wasn't praying, Lord, show me the right man to marry. I was saying, Lord, please let Andrew be the right man. Please let Andrew be the right man. You know, it just, it was, like a, it was like an unstoppable force in my heart that couldn't be quenched. It's like I dreamt about him, I thought about him, I ate about him. You know, it's just like whatever. It just invaded my thoughts constantly. Do you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> and some of those were for, the, you know, those, 
mother, you were 11 years old and, you know, that was long gone and long past and it faded into nothing. But imagine when God says he loves you. All the intensity of that multiplied by infinity is what he's talking about. He's talking about a passion that would not stop at the worst and most cruel death because he loved us. I absolutely hate Brussels sprouts with a passion. Is anybody with me? Some people, I know you can't understand it. I'm so sorry for you. God made everything except Brussels sprouts. But I know they're so very good for you. So on occasion, I would cook them for my family when they were younger. And you know what? Because I wanted them to like them, I used to eat them with a smile on my face, acting like they were the most delicious thing I'd ever tasted. You know, if that small little sacrifice I was prepared to go through for the well-being of my children, I mean, how much more? I mean, really, how much more? I mean, that's like the most superficial example I could give. But what would you do for the person you loved? What did you do? And we think about what God did. It was literally the perfect unity that was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was prepared for a start to rip that apart so that he could come and be here on earth with you and me. And then he was prepared to be spiritually ripped away from his father, experience the most excruciating torture because he looked ahead to a joy when he would be united with me. Amen. It goes on. So that's about God's love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world not to contem- condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, I, I don't know how many people I've heard talk about church that, that are not in church. This always comes from people who aren't in church. They seem to be very knowledgeable about church. And I often want to say to them, where did you get that information? Because I haven't seen you for a very long time in church. But nonetheless, they are very quick to say how they don't want to be around the church because the church condemns them and judges them. Have you heard that? If you haven't heard that, you haven't invited enough people to church. (laughs) Keep going, you'll hear it. I always want to haul out this verse. Because the truth is, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. I want you to understand that. It's the minute that you, me, anyone, the world chooses to turn away from God, to to try to live your life independently, successful in your own right. I'm a self-made man. Gosh, self-made woman. What that in essence is, is I'm turning away from God and saying, I don't need you. The minute we do that, we think of sin as being this wild, crazy, I've shot 20 people. No, it's simply turning away from God and saying, I'm sufficient in myself and I don't need you. And the minute you do that, it's not God condemning you. It's you saying, I have chosen a way, a way from God. 
And in so doing, God, because he is the glorious, incredible God that he is, who has created you a free moral agent, says, oh my word, it breaks my heart, but you can have what you want. And it's not God who's condemned us, but it's us who stepped out of life and love into condemnation, into judgment, into separation from God. And it says in the last paragraph, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Listen to me, that's not because. It is true that you are not condemned, but that is not because you are a good person. Do you understand that? It's not because you pay all your taxes. It's not because you don't litter. It's not because you've never killed anyone. It's not because you come to church. It's not because you read your Bible. You are not condemned because Jesus stood there, hung on that cross, condemned. And he says, all I'm asking is that you will come and hide yourself in me. And I will take the condemnation. I will take the flack. I will take the pain. I will take the heartache. And all you have to do is be in me. Oh, gosh. You can tell how passionate I am about that point. All you have to be is be in me, and I will take it for you. How many of you know that story about the Trojan horse? If you've studied any kind of Greek mythology, which I don't really know why we study it, because it was really relevant to the Greeks, but completely irrelevant to our lives right now. But nonetheless, there is a really great story, and this story goes that there was a particular city in Greece that was being attacked and under siege. And the men and women, or no women, the men who were besieging the city could not break through. And they said, if we can't break through by force, we'll break through by pleasure. And they built this fantastic wooden horse that was hollow inside, and all the soldiers climbed inside this horse, and then they just left the horse outside the gate of the city, and their thing was to say, we, we surrender and we leave this great gift for you. And some of the army retreated, and the rest of the army stayed hidden in the horse, and then they, oh, they opened the city's gates and were delighted with this gift. Look, they're honoring us. They brought in this huge horse Went to bed that night, woke up the next morning with enemy soldiers all around, killing everyone. What's that got to do with the kingdom? This is what it's got to do with the kingdom. Is that you can't get into the city of God on your own. But Jesus Christ was prepared to be a Trojan horse. He was prepared to hollow out in his soul a place where you could hide. And then he was allowed through those city gates and he smuggled you in. <laughs> you didn't get in because you're fantastic. You got in because you're in Christ. Amen. Amen. So am I actually going to um, preach some more stuff? Yes, I am. So I want to talk about three aspects about the love of God. And the first thing is that the love of God consists of unconditional affection. I remember this when my first child was born, when they placed him in my arms. I literally thought my heart would burst. I don't know. I mean, I, Andrew had muscles on muscles, and it was a really incredible kind of love. But when they place that helpless little baby on your chest, it's something else. Something else. At that moment, he had done nothing. 
to impress me. In fact, he'd done a lot to disimpress me, unimpress me. He'd made me sick. He'd made, given me heartburn. He'd given me pain. I'd just been through 11 hours of excruciating agony. And yet when I held that tiny little bundle in my arms, I'm telling you a thousand armies couldn't have got him away from me. And I'm telling you this, I knew at that moment what it means to love unconditionally. Because I knew in my heart, and I felt this for all my children, I don't care what this child ever does in its future. I will love this child. That their pain will be my pain. That their successes will be my successes. That my love compels me to think good of this child always. I remember when my children were going through their teenage years and they weren't always good, believe it or not. I know they look like angels now, but they had a few moments. They had a few moments. And I remember I had once been called into the principal's office. Yes, it happens to pastors too. And the principal was telling me something about my daughter. I looked her in the face and I said, no, you're lying. That'd never be. I later discovered it was. But nonetheless, at that moment, no one is going to tell me something bad about my children. My daughter once told me later that the reason she came out of her teenage nonsense was because outside of home, she was this one person. But when she come, it came into home, everyone loved her and told her so her, how fantastic she was. She finally wanted to live up to that reputation. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I think that's so great. It's a good reason to tell our children how awesome they are. But I feel like that's how God is. This is unconditional affection. Sorry. I did something fancy with my slides, and I see that that wasn't so fancy after all. But Jesus in John 15 told us to abide in his love. What does it mean? It means that we are meant to live in it. It's meant to define us. It's meant to inform our actions. It is meant to create an environment where our heart is satisfied and not looking and longing for other things. It's meant to be a place of safety and a place of life. In Hosea 11, I absolutely, absolutely love the scripture. God is talking in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel has forsaken him. It's gone and done everything he told them not to do. It's basically snubbed him, told him, we don't care about your love. And, she, and God said this to the nation of Israel. He said, when Jacob was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called him. It goes on and says, how with cords of love, I have drawn him. It says, it was I who took him by the hand and taught him how to walk. And though he didn't know me, I healed him. 
I feel this is such an incredible picture of the way God feels about us. You know what? No matter who you are, what you've done, God is going to love you. You thought you learned to walk just by sheer willpower. You learned to walk because God took your hand and he taught you. He spoke into your heart. He spoke into your being. You feel like you got that job promotion because you were spectacular. God went before you and he made a way. You feel like you were given those children because you married the right person. No. God intervened and he brought about beauty in your life regardless of your mistakes. Why? Because it's who he is. He's an unconditional lover of your soul, lover of your heart, lover of who you are. And last of all is his unconditional affection means he's not angry. I know this is wild. We live with so many reports of God's anger. There are entire branches of the body of Christ that specialize in angry God sermons. They beat the pulpit, saliva flies out of their mouth with great vehemence. They tell you how God is angry with you, and if you don't change your ways, you're going to be struck down by lightning. Or worse. And you know what? Some people in this world are going to be struck down by lightning. It may not be, it won't be because God's angry. It's because we live in a fallen world. And God is desperately trying to bring the world back under his control through you and me. Bad things don't happen because God is angry. They happen because God is not there. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse 9, that how much more if we're saved through Jesus' death and resurrection, how much more are we going to be saved in this life from God's wrath? In other words, God, God does get angry. The Bible is full of examples of his, him being angry. But in Christ, we are saved from that wrath. He was angry at Jesus so that he didn't ever have to be angry with you. Amen. Therefore, we can run to God. We don't have to run away from God. When things go wrong, when we've messed up, we don't face an angry, angry condemning God. We face a, a loving and open-armed, receiving and receptive God who says, come, I'll change it. I'll make it better. I'll change you. The next thing is unlimited access. I actually want to read Romans 8, 37 to 39. It's a really great scripture, and I, I know it very well. I can just never get the right order. Do you ever know about those scriptures that have a lot of um, different aspects to them? And to, to learn their order is a bit crazy, so I'm going to just simply read it to you. Romans 8, starting at verse 37, it says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. He's talking about all the good and the bad and the ugly and the terrible things that we can face. He says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't know how powerful your devil is, but some of us have the imagination of an extremely powerful devil who can come and do terrible things to us. And if we don't pray 24 hours a day, oh my word, he's going to get us. I'm here to tell you that that's not true. That the only time the devil can get us is when we step out of God's love. And there is only one thing that can get you out of God's love, and that's your own choice. So if we want to say who is the worst enemy in this world, it's our wrong thinking. Neither present nor future can separate you from the love of God. Have you ever thought about that? God has already looked into your future, and he's seen the wonderful things you're going to do, but he's also seen the terrible things you're going to do. And he's already chosen you despite that. So when you get there, we all in some way are going to mess up. I hope it's very small mess ups. But when you get there and you do mess up, I want you to remember this. God already, already made provision for that. And this cannot separate you from God's love. You will face the consequences of it, but God will be there with you. The next thing about unlimited access into his presence and into his love is that there is a wall of hostility that exists between us and God. Before before you knew God, you had thoughts about God that were completely erroneous. You thought he was an angry, judgmental, cruel, harsh, self-righteous God. Or you thought he was a distant, uncaring, unloving disinterested God. And this created a wall of hostility between you, but Jesus came and broke through that and he showed you who God really was. But in addition, it says that there is a wall of hostility that that exists between me and my neighbor. Because without God, outside of God's love, I have no one to rely on but myself, and therefore if he succeeds, I fail. And therefore, I must succeed and he must fail. In order for me to be okay, outside of Jesus Christ, then other people must not do well and I must do well. And it talks about a wall of hostility that not only exists between me and my neighbor, but between racial groupings. This very scripture that is written there, Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, talks about how the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he said this, he said this, Paul writing in Ephesians, he said that in Christ, this wall of hostility is broken down and you're all one in him. That means no matter what your culture is, no matter where you come from, no matter how you look, no matter what food you kind like to eat, that in Christ Jesus, you and me are one. And there can no longer be any separation. Mike is making a very rude comment in the front. I have said this. I will embrace his culture in every respect except I refuse point blank to eat chicken feet. 
just refuse, refuse point blank. And he's challenging me now. And I said to him, I will eat chicken feet if he eats prawns. <laughs> and I can see him going pale right now. It's hard to tell. You have to look very closely. <laughs> For those at the back who don't know, Mike is black. So uh, oh, some funny jokes are coming to my mind, but because we're in church, I'm going to skip right past them. The last thing that we have with God in his love is his unmerited favor. Guys, this is so wild to comprehend. This means that good is coming to you even if you're not a good person. I know, oh my word, that's not right. It's not just, it's not true. Gosh, if this world were just, we'd all be dead. <laughs> I absolutely love the scripture. For surely, O oh Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. You know what? I picture this. I picture that around me, there is this wall of favor that even when I meet people who hate me, they first bump into the favor of God and have no choice but to bless me. By the time they're looking in my face, they're thinking good things about me. Really, I think like that. And I've met some difficult people in my time. Trust me. I've met some people who are determined that I will not succeed. And those, you know what, I once had a person say this about me, not into my face, but about me, that that woman has no anointing and she will never succeed in the church. Yeah, they weren't those exact words, but that was the basics. About four years ago, or maybe a little bit more than that, that same person publicly said, or publicly spoke about the great anointing that was on me and how wonderful I was at building church. He never knew that he, I knew about that other statement. But I just, I just realized this is what it's like. It's like when the favor of God is around you, even people who don't want to acknowledge you have to acknowledge you. There's a spiritual force about you that, that commands all of creation to bless you. It's called being God's son, being God's daughter. And the problem is we don't believe it, so we expect the worst. So our faith draws out bad things from situations. Our faith that something bad is going to happen draws that out. And instead, our faith in the turning our faith to the fact that God's favor surrounds us will in fact draw out good from every situation. It will force the, those environments to conform to the truth that we carry. Amen. You wonder why I've got two of those um, antique dresses there. I had a, just a lovely grandmother. She was of Scottish descent. I had one Irish one and one Scottish one. You know that calmness and peace in our home did not exist. Everything was loud, crazy, and with a lot of conflict. Nonetheless, I had this, this grandmother who was Scottish, and she and her husband had gotten quite wealthy, and they had bought a whole lot of beautiful, beautiful furniture, all of it antique, even in her day, antique. When she died, I didn't get all of it. Otherwise, I would have sold it, and I'd be living on a yacht now. 
but I did get one or two of her antique furniture pieces. And some time ago, a man walked into my house. He was coming there for a meeting, and he saw one of the pieces, and he just he basically fell down on his knees and just he didn't kiss it, but he he looked like he was about. He was like, "Oh my word, that is so beautiful!" And so he, he was an antique collector. He was just like, "Oh, that is just such an incredible piece. How did you get it?" So I was tempted to say I worked very hard. I maneuvered. I made deals. I I was tempted to say that and make myself look really good. But the truth is. I got for free what my grandmother worked very hard for. And this is what unmerited favor is like. It's that we get for free what Jesus worked for. We step into blessings that we don't deserve. This is what the love of Jesus is all about. Amen. Expect that every setback actually takes you forward and that every roadblock redirects you to the road of blessing. That's what God's unmerited favor looks like and feels like. Amen. So, Father, I come and pray for each person here. Lord God, we just welcome you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in our lives. Lord God, we want to live in your love. Lord God, we want any place of our minds that thinks wrong about you to start thinking right. Lord God, we don't want to live in smallness. We don't want to accept our fate. We don't want to just live with mediocrity. Lord God, we want to live in the fullness of everything you want for us. We want to know your love. We want to understand your ways. Thank you, Lord.